The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com. This is Barron's Live. Each weekday, we bring you live conversations from our newsrooms about what's moving the market right now. On this podcast, we take you inside those conversations, the stories, the ideas, and the stocks to watch so you can invest smarter. Now, let's dial in. Hello, I'm Rashma Kapadia, Associate Editor at Barron's, welcoming, welcoming you to Managing Your Money, Making Sense of China's Challenges. Today with me is Andy Rothman, Investment Strategist at Matthews Asia. Welcome, Andy. Hey, thanks. Great to be here. Thank you for helping us digest all of this um, China-related news that we're getting lately. It it seems like um, there's not a day that goes by without a headline. So I want to sort of start with the state of the U.S.-China relationship, since it's really an important backdrop for some of the headlines that we're seeing. You know, how how should investors be thinking about this relationship? How has it evolved over the last couple of years and and how, how bad are things at this point in time? That's a great question to start with. I think that for investors, it's useful to look at it from two different lenses. One is the political to talk about the pretty sharp deterioration in the bilateral relationship between the governments in Beijing and Washington. But the second lens, which is just as important, is to look at the economic relationship, which has a big impact on investment decisions. So let's start with the political. As I said, the relationship has been deteriorating sharply over the last couple of years. Um, And I think this is bad for everybody in the United States and and in China. It's really unfortunate that it's gone this way. Uh, But, you know, I don't think we're heading to conflict. And I think people who talk about the inevitability of conflict between a, a status quo power and a rising power are missing the point that all of us have the opportunity to make decisions which can avoid that kind of thing happening. And I also think that the biggest problem we have today between our two governments is a lack of communication. Mm -hmm. There's just not enough dialogue going on between the two governments. And this is really important because if there is an accident, we don't have the relationships and the channels open to prevent those accidents from becoming a bigger problem or, or even a crisis. And, you know, we will talk, I assume, about Taiwan a little bit later, but we've got a lot of gear in Taiwan, military mm-hmm. gear from both sides. And, you know, accidents happen and we need to have the kind of relationship where people know who to call when that accident happens to prevent that from getting out of control. This is but, a very, yeah, a very good point. Go ahead. Sorry, didn't mean to interrupt. Yeah, but, but from, an, from an economics and investment perspective, let's also keep in mind that the impact of this political tension is not going to have a big impact on the Chinese economy or its investment environment because China has increasingly become an economy like ours, which is domestic demand driven. So last year was the 10th consecutive year in which the tertiary part of China's GDP, that's the consumer and services part, was the largest part of China's GDP. It contributes to all of the growth, all the job creation. That's where most of the innovation is coming from, consumer and services part of the economy. 
And as investors, particularly at Matthews Asia, that's where we're focused on Chinese companies selling goods and services to Chinese consumers. And that doesn't really get hit very much by these tensions because it's really all at home. And we can you know, avoid companies, investors can avoid companies that might be sanctioned over technology issues or might get caught up in tariffs. Mm-hmm. I think one of the reasons that we write so much about China, even though, as we know, U.S. investors often have a very small, if any, allocation to China is because of its sort of heft in terms of um, the broader portfolio, whether it's you know through multinationals or economic channels or, or geopolitical channels with things like tariffs and, and, and whatnot. Um, or just even the risk premium or the free, you know, the fear that it can create in, in, in the market. So I want to kind of just pivot a little bit to Taiwan, which obviously um, earlier this this month, it seems like all eyes were focused on Taiwan as um, as the Speaker of the House um, visited uh, Taiwan, despite the threats from Beijing. And then we saw a whole bunch of U.S. congressional delegations follow um, and, and China responded with, you know, live fire, military drills and, and whatnot. You, you made a very good point about the lack of communication and also sort of the buildup we're seeing in the straits. So, I mean, how should I guess, you know, give us your perspective. You've spent time in, in the region. You've worked in the State Department. How 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 much escalation are we seeing? How how significant is all of the c- concern around Taiwan right now? Oh, lots of great questions. Um, all right, let me start by, by um, also letting listeners know where my perspective comes from. So I first went to China as a student in 1980, and then I went back to work there as a very junior American diplomat in 1984 and spent 17 years in the Foreign Service working mostly on China. And that included a couple of years in the mid-90s as the Taiwan desk officer mm-hmm. at the State Department in Washington. And that was the period of time when tensions were really high and China was firing missiles near Taiwan and President Clinton sent the Seventh Fleet nearby. So that colors a lot mm-hmm. of the way I look at this issue. Uh, I don't think things are as bad today as they were then, but I worry about it getting that bad. Uh, and I guess I would describe my concern right now as all sides in this, which is the Taiwan side, the mainland China side, and the U.S. side, seemingly stumbling into a conflict that nobody wants and that will be good for nobody. Uh, One way to picture this is that when Speaker Pelosi went to Taiwan recently, when she arrived in Taipei, she said that she was in favor of the status quo with respect to Taiwan's diplomatic status, um, and that she still was in favor of the U.S. one China policy. Tsai Ing-wen, the president of Taiwan, said she told Speaker Pelosi that she is in favor of the status quo of Tsai Ing-wen, and that the Taiwanese people are very pragmatic. Um, at the same time, the spokesman for the White House said that the Biden administration has not changed the U.S.-China that the U.S. is one China policy and still does not support Taiwan independence. And China is saying similar things. So all parties are saying that they prefer the status quo, but yet nobody believes that Mm -hmm. because of the way some people are acting or speaking. And so that to me is a scenario where we're all kind of tripping all over ourselves. Yeah and possibly making a mistake that leads to conflict that doesn't serve anybody's interests. Uh, Yet, I don't think it's going to go that far. Uh, I I think that 
all sides know that conflict in the Taiwan Strait would be devastating. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I spoke to a retired uh, four-star U.S. Naval Admiral who has a lot of experience in the region who told me that conflict there would make Ukraine look like nothing. Yeah. Um, and everybody knows this. And so I think that communications need to be picked up. Everybody needs to take a step back and think, why are we in this position right now when none of what's been happening in recent weeks makes the people on Taiwan safer or wealthier? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's a good point. Um, I mean, I think a lot of it is sort of this bipartisan um, push to kind of take a tougher stance um, against China here and then also sort of nationalism also in, in right. China. But what I would ask everybody who's participating in this now to take a step back and say, when you say things or when you do things that you say are because you support Taiwan, mm-hmm. how do those actions or words make Taiwan more secure? Yeah, good point. Good point. Um, so, I mean, you mentioned how no one really wants this, especially now. I mean, we're all sort of dealing with economic issues, China especially, um, in part because of its sort of zero COVID approach um, and the toll that's taken on the economy. What is your expectation here in terms of the policy and, and how that evolves? Um, you know, as, as our readers may know that um, Shanghai, for example, was locked down for almost two months. We are seeing pockets of lockdowns through um, through China. We're seeing sort of an uptick in cases in, in um, Sichuan, if I'm not mistaken. Um, so I'm, I'm wondering how you're, you're expecting this policy to, to evolve. Mm, okay, that's a great question. Would you mind if I take us uh, uh, go back a bit, though, of course to something not. that you said earlier when you were kind of prefacing the Taiwan question sure. about how American investors look at Taiwan and have a relatively small allocation and how should they think of that? Because I, I think you raised a really interesting point there. Uh, most Americans do have nothing directly invested in, in China or a small allocation to it. Uh, but I want to talk about why that's important, especially understanding what's happening in China, because Mm -hmm. even if you as an investor don't think you have any direct China exposure, you have a lot of indirect China exposure. Yes. It's the world's second largest economy, but maybe more importantly, from an investor's perspective, China drives global economic growth. Yep. Over the last decade, on average every year, China's accounted for about a third of economic growth. That's a larger share of global growth than from the U.S., Europe, and Japan combined. Mm -hmm. So maybe the most important message that I can leave with your audience today is for every American investor, it's really important to understand what's happening in China because it has such a huge impact on our economy and our investment choices. From a, a macro perspective, what happens in China has a big impact here because it drives global growth. If China slows down dramatically, that would have a negative impact on our economic growth, Yeah. in part because it's such a, a big market for our goods and services. It's also really important to a lot of the companies that your listeners might own. So, for example, you know, GM sells more cars every day in China than it does in the United States. Mm-hmm. Companies like Qualcomm. Uh, in order for them to stay competitive, they need the R&D funds that come out of half of their global revenue being generated by China. Uh, Intel, Apple, uh, NVIDIA, all of these companies get 20% or more of their global revenue from China. 
So it's really important to spend a little bit of time understanding what's happening there beyond the headlines, which sometimes are emphasizing the dramatic. Exactly. And I think one of our, our um, listeners had, had sort of pointed to that and, and, and asked um, sort of how, I think it was Marcel, who, you know, how does China sort of reinstall trust from global investors, given the negative sort of news cycle? Um, I think it's, um, it's not so much China, it's just sort of like digging into sort of what's going on there to really understand how it impacts us. And you mentioned all those companies getting revenue, but we're also talking about supply chains that go through China, right? So it also That's kind right. of impacts inflationary picture and, and whatnot. So let's, I, right. I, I do want to ta tackle Marcel's, Marcel's question. And, and sure. that is that, you know, it has been a rough road for investors in, in China over the last couple of years, and, and we can dive into some of the reasons. But, you know, what, what do you think is necessary to sort of um, regain that trust of, of global investors to, to kind of um, continue to invest in China? Yeah, I think turning around performance is going to be key for all of us, right? Uh, because when markets underperform for a consistent period of time, people people get tired of it, rightly so. Uh, but I do think there's an opportunity for this to turn around now. Uh, the biggest obstacle to performance in China right now, I think, of the economy and the investment environment is China's zero COVID policy. Right. Thank you for bringing yeah. us back to that question. <laughs> yeah. And, but let's put this in context. Up until the relatively recent arrival of the Omicron variant of COVID in China, their zero COVID policy actually worked really well. They have, from a public health policy, it's worked well. Uh, they've had far fewer deaths than most countries. Uh, for example, uh, they've only had four COVID deaths per million, one million population uh, in China compared to over 3,000 in the United States. Mm -hmm. uh, as of a few days ago, they only had about 7,000 people in a hospital with COVID cases. We had over 30,000. Uh, they haven't had a COVID death in over two months now, whereas we're still suffering a few hundred COVID deaths per day. So they, it has been successful from a public health perspective. Uh, and from an economic perspective, it was really working well through last year prior to Omicron, come, Omicron coming in. Uh, last year, for example, the consumer part of the economy bounced back from where it was in 2019 pre-COVID more strongly than it's bounced back in the United States and in, uh, in Europe. But when Omicron arrived, it really shattered the efficacy of, of zero COVID, and they've been struggling with adjusting to that. They've made some minor adjustments, but worries by Chinese families that there could be more widespread lockdowns like we saw in Shanghai in uh, April and May mean that they're reluctant to spend money because they don't know what's going to happen to their, their income. Mm -hmm. Companies look at that and say they're reluctant to hire more people or expand capacity because they're worried about the potential for these lockdowns. So in order for the economy to really bounce back, the Chinese government's going to have to find a, a new balance between protecting the health of Chinese people, but also protecting their economy and allowing that to get back on track. They've made some minor adjustments, as I said, but I'm hopeful that more significant adjustments are going to come after October 
and that in the coming few quarters, we're going to see changes to public health policy, which will allow the economy to bounce back, which will create a better investment environment. Interesting. Um, okay, well, I just want to remind our audience to submit any questions they may have, and we'll still try to tackle them the next um, 15 or so minutes. Um, I So you mentioned October, Andy, mm. of course, um, we are headed into the 20th Party Congress, which everyone sort of um, has, has talked about as, as a very important event. Can we step back and talk about what is the 20th Party Congress, why this year is um, especially important in terms of political transitions? Yeah. So they just announced overnight that this uh, meeting of the senior Chinese leadership, uh, the 20th Party Congress, will take place in mid-October. This is a, a, a meeting that takes place every five years, and it's, a, it's basically a personnel meeting. This is when the top folks, and it's basically top guys, in the Chinese Communist Party get together and decide who's going to get promoted and what their jobs are going to be for the coming five years. Uh, the key promotion that we're going to see coming out of this in October is that Xi Jinping, the head of the Chinese Communist Party, is going to be officially awarded a third five-year term. Um, but that's not a cliffhanger. We know that's going to happen. Uh, what I think is more important for investors is that a lot of policymaking grinds to a halt in the run-up to this event. It's kind of like here in the U.S. where it's difficult, but not impossible, as we've seen in recent weeks, to get political decisions made running up to, say, the midterm elections, because everybody's really focused on that and doesn't want to make a decision that might bounce back negatively with the voters. Now, there are no voters in China, but people are worried about making a decision that will generate criticism, which might upend a promotion they've been waiting for. So my expectation is, given the obviousness of the need to continue to relax the zero COVID policy, that once this meeting is over, say the end of October, that we are over the following months going to see a return to pragmatism by the Chinese leadership on everything, including on how they deal with COVID. Mm. So there are a lot of questions about tech regulation. Um, Steve is asking, you know, President Xi seems to be more interested in reining in Chinese tech companies and promoting social stability. Um, as a result, their tech companies have suffered and so have their stocks. Um, and I know that this is a question that Ranjit also asked, um, you know, of whether the tech regulatory fear is really behind us. Obviously, that's been very hard for investors over the last two years. How are you thinking about sort of further regulation in, in the tech industry? Yeah, that that has been a really depressing influence on, on, on the Chinese market and the tech companies in particular. I think it's important to try and understand what Xi Jinping and the rest of the leadership is trying to accomplish. And I know that many people here have looked at what they've done to the tech sector particularly the uh, platform companies, and described it as an effort by the Chinese government to roll back the market reforms of the last several decades, to reduce the power and influence within the economy of privately owned companies as opposed to state-owned companies. I don't think that's an accurate understanding of what they're trying to accomplish. Hmm. And one of the reasons for this is that it would be committing economic suicide. And I don't think that there's evidence that the Chinese leadership has become that stupid. 
because China has become rich and powerful and the Chinese Communist Party has stayed in power as long as it has because of a pragmatic approach to economic and social policy, primarily allowing markets to take over from the government over the last several decades. You know, this has been an enormous change. For example, when I first started working in China in the early 80s, there were no private companies at all. Mm-hmm. And all mm-hmm. prices were set by the government. Today, you could, I mean, back then, there, you couldn't even find a privately owned restaurant when I was working in, in, in Guangzhou. Today, about 90% of urban employment is with small, privately run entrepreneurial companies. About 90%. All of the net new job creation comes from those small private companies because the state sector is still shrinking. Almost all prices are, are set by the market. This has created all of the jobs all of the wealth, all of the innovation in the Chinese economy. So to roll that back would be crazy. And I don't see evidence that the leaders in China are crazy. Instead, I think that this crackdown on the tech sector last year was really motivated by a lot of the same socio-political economic concerns that we have here about the structure of our economy and society. I think this is Xi Jinping saying, I'm worried about inequality of income, inequality of wealth, unequal access to healthcare and education, and also anti-competitive practices by some big firms, particularly in the tech space. And I think he has seen some of the problems that we've had dealing with this, how politically polarized some of these questions have become, and decided that he needed to act quickly before things got too bad in, in China. But implementation of what I think are these admirable objectives was just chaotic. And that led to a lot of harm to these companies that I don't think the Chinese government wants to damage because they are such a vibrant part of the economy. By the end of last year, however, the government in China acknowledged that they had done a terrible job with this and said that they were uh, done with the worst parts of it and they were going to become more uh, smarter about how to implement this. So I think we're going to see a lot less volatility in that sector, but that's being masked now by all the problems that come about because of zero COVID. Mm. So I'm hopeful that, you know, basically relaxing zero COVID, finding a more balanced approach to public health and the economy with COVID and learning to live with COVID like the rest of the world, I think that is going to allow us to see that the approach to the tech sector is going to be more rational this year compared to last year. Mm, interesting. So the other thing that China is dealing with is its property sector, right? Which was also sort of um, initially they were trying to kind of get in, get a control of the debt and speculation and, you know, property was becoming impossible to afford for people. So also tackling inequality on that front, but now it's kind of spiraled into a bit of a crisis um, that is also sort of hurting economic growth because it's a major engine um, or has been in the past. Um, what does this all do for consumer sentiments? Because you did, you know, we started talking about how the consumer and services sector is such a large portion of the economy, such an important part of the economy. And we're really seeing a generation for the first time that seeing sort of unemployment at these levels, youth unemployment had spiked, I believe, in the last reading. Um, We're seeing declines in in property prices. Um, The economy is slowing. What does that do to sort of sentiment amongst uh, Chinese consumers? Yeah. Um, So let's talk about 
property for a few minutes, if you don't mind, because it is a big issue. And I think what, you know, I said earlier that relaxing zero COVID is the most important thing that the Chinese government needs to do to get the economy and the investment environment back on track. But number two is fixing the problem that households have lost confidence in developers who build new homes in China. Yeah, yeah. But let's let's start with a few basics first, because I think this is really important. Um, for me, the property market in China is fundamentally healthy. And one of the reasons for this is that most people, the vast majority of people who buy new homes in China are owner-occupiers. Mm-hmm. There's actually very little speculation. And on top of that, the people who are buying these homes are required to put down a lot of cash. Yeah. So that's a huge difference from what we saw here in the United States. If you go back to our housing crisis a decade or so ago, for me, the most important statistic that tells us what went wrong here was that in 2006, just before the crisis, the median cash down payment for a new home in the United States, the median was 2% to the purchase price. Yeah. Right. And in China, by regulation, the minimum cash down payments, 20%. Most people have to put down 30%. It's all plain vanilla mortgage lending, no option arms, no ninja loans, no balloon option arms. Mm-hmm. So the fundamentals, I think, are, are really good. And yeah. Prices, the reason I, it's not going to be a Lehman crisis, which I think a lot of people. That's right. That. Right. That's yeah. right. And it's not a bubble, I think, also because bubbles for me are all about leverage and leverage mm-hmm. is really low. So what's gone wrong? What's gone wrong is that last year, the Chinese government was afraid that house, the housing market was too hot. So in the first five months of last year, 2019, new home sales on a square meter basis were up 39% year over year booming. So the government panicked and told banks, all of which are controlled by the government, to stop issuing mortgages. Mm-hmm. So in the latter seven months of last year, new home sales were down 13% year over year after rising 39%. This meant this dried up income for developers. Yeah. And that led 27 developers who accounted for almost 20% of new home sales last year to default on their debt obligations. Mm-hmm. And then on top of that, because developers couldn't get enough money, they, some of them stopped building apartments that people had already paid for. Yeah. And so your listeners have probably heard about mortgage protests. This is a response from people because most new homes in China are sold on a pre-sale basis, which means the buyer makes a cash down payment, takes out a mortgage while the unit is still under construction. A few of these developers have stopped work. And so some of the, pro, the, what the protesters are about are not that people can't afford their mortgage, but it's people who are saying, I'm threatening to stop paying my mortgage unless the government steps in and tells this developer to actually complete the flat that I've already paid for. Mm-hmm. And so the government has paid attention and they've started dealing with this, but they haven't done enough yet. And I think they can't do enough until after the COVID policy is taken care of. Mm-hmm. So Everything revolves around when is zero COVID going to be relaxed, which will allow everything else to get back to kind of where it was last year. So can I, let's talk a little bit about that because there, I think people don't understand the public health situation. I mean, they don't have enough hospital beds. They, the vaccination rates amongst the elderly has been low. The vaccines weren't as efficacious. So like, it's not just the 20th party Congress is happening in the fall, but there are other factors that you think will help them relax the COVID policy later in the year, right? 
Yeah, the, the, the zero COVID policy, which as I noted, worked really well during the first couple of years of COVID kind of boxed them in, uh, both from a public health perspective and also because the Chinese government made some really bad decisions. The bad decisions uh, primarily involved not allow, like, approving for use in China the Pfizer and Moderna mRNA vaccines yeah. while they waited to develop their own vaccines. So they've rolled out their own uh, traditional activated whole virus vaccines, but they're just not as effective as the mRNA vaccines. And their companies seem to be quite far behind on developing their own mRNA. So that's a problem. And then, as you said, they haven't vaccinated enough of older people. And they have a population of people over the age of 80, which is as big as the entire population of Texas. And they're really worried about those people getting sick and dying. Yeah, yeah. Um, but a lot more can be done. They really need to ramp up the vaccine program to get those people vaccinated. Um, and they've just got to make some decisions like everybody else has, including, you know, in, in places in their neighborhood, like in Taiwan and Singapore and Korea um, and Japan. They, they, they need to find a way to get more people vaccinated and open up because even though their vaccines are not as effective as ours, if you get three jabs in older people's arms of those, they're 98% effective against preventing death mm -hmm. from, from COVID. So there are things they can do. And I think that there's just been a reluctance to take those steps prior to the party Congress. Mm, okay. Because we're at that standstill where nothing really happens, it seems, right. before that party Congress. Okay. Um, we're running out of time, but I definitely want to talk about delistings, which is a very hot topic for our readers. Um, so we, we did see some maybe glimmers of a framework for some sort of compromise that could keep um, Chinese companies that are listed in the U.S. on um, U.S. exchanges. I mean, what is your thought process on these little baby steps? And, and you know, does that sort of remove the cloud that has lingered over um, some of these big companies? Yeah, uh, I'm sure many of your listeners are familiar with this issue. But for, for those who are not, uh, let me summarize it quickly. Uh, this has been a dispute between the two governments. It's not about Chinese companies or their auditors refusing to open their books. It's between the two governments. And the two governments have been tangling over a requirement that's been around in the U.S. for many years under Sarbanes-Oxley that the Public Company Accounting Oversight Board, the PCAOB, must periodically inspect the audit workbooks at the accounting firms, not at the companies themselves, but the accounting firms, to make sure that we don't get a repeat of Enron. Yeah. Um, the PCOB has negotiated agreements with 25 other countries over the years to allow this to happen, but there's been a stalemate for years with China. This has finally been resolved uh, last week, at least on paper, where the two sides have agreed to a process where PCOB inspectors will be heading over to China uh, in, in the coming weeks to start doing these inspections of the audit workbooks. I think this is important for several reasons. One, obviously, if these inspections that are going to take place soon are successful, that will eliminate the risk of a mass forced delisting of the more than 200 Chinese companies that are trading on U.S. exchanges. So that's great for investors. But I also want to point out that when you have an American depository receipt, an ADR, you can't lose that. So even if the companies are delisted, investors here will not be left with nothing. And it is just a paperwork process to convert an ADR 
for those companies that have dual listings in Hong Kong, let's say, to a Hong Kong share. But now it looks like that's going to be resolved. But I think even more important than that is, to me, the Chinese government's willingness to resolve this issue right now, when you have so high level of tension between Washington and Beijing, we talked about the tensions over Taiwan, and coming ahead of the party congress, this is, to me, a great indicator that the leadership in China does want to be more pragmatic when it comes to a whole range of issues. And so I think it's a really positive sign with respect to how they might deal with COVID, how they might deal with the property market in the coming quarters. Mm, interesting. And I guess we'll, we'll see come October and November how those inspections go and whether they sort of served both sides' needs because there, it, there seems to be a lot that needs to happen for that execution. Yeah, but I, I would emphasize, I, I know some people have been arguing that the press releases that PCAOB and the Chinese regulator, the CSRC, mm -hmm. have put out are somewhat different. But to me, as a former U.S. diplomat, this is standard. Uh, whenever there's a bilateral agreement, both sides will put out press releases that try and pitch it to their own domestic audience in a way that they think resonates with those audiences. Mm. When I read the two statements, I didn't see anything that contradicted each other. It was just a different emphasis. And I also know from prior conversations with U.S. officials that PCAOB has not been willing to send its inspectors to China until they felt that they had an agreement that would allow them to do the work in China the same way they do the work in Japan and Singapore and Germany and the UK. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So I feel pretty, pretty optimistic that when they get on the ground and they actually do these things, it, it's going to likely be successful. Yeah, I think I've, I've gotten a little bit of skepticism about maybe not all of the companies will be um, allowed, you know, the, the ones that have sort of data privacy or cloud oriented business. Yeah, I'm also more optimistic about that because you might remember that a few weeks ago, five large state-owned yeah. companies in China voluntarily delisted. Yeah. And I know that the PCAOB had told the Chinese government if you have companies that you don't want us to inspect their audit workbooks for some reason, mm. fine. You can voluntarily delist them before we get on the plane. Ah. And that way they will be excluded from the pool of potential inspections because they're going to be delisted. Oh, but once we get on the plane, it's too late after we get there. Mm. So I'm optimistic that the reason those five were delisted a few weeks ago, just before this agreement was announced, is because those are the only companies that I think the Chinese government deems is too sensitive. Wow. And then it's also worth noting that in the press statements that the Chinese regulator put out last week, they highlighted that audit workbooks do not contain sensitive data. Yeah, I saw that. Yeah, yeah. That'll be interesting. That Well, that's good insight. Thank you for that. Um, so I guess then I, I'm going to leave you with one last question, and this is when I get off, and I'm sure you get it off into, given all of the the you know change that's that's going on with the re relationship being reset, the economic growth slowing, um, COVID, why why should U.S. investors have any allocation to China? We talked a lot about how why China is important to investors globally broadly, but why 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 is there a case for people thinking about having an allocation to China right now? Thanks. A great question to wrap up with, Rashmi. Um, I, as I mentioned, China drives global growth. Uh, China, on average, accounts for a third of global economic growth every year, more than the U.S., Europe, and Japan combined. It drives a lot of innovation. 
It's got a lot of great companies and also its markets tend to not operate on the same cycle as the U.S., especially true right now, because China is going to be, is already and is going to continue to be one of the few economies in the world that is going to be easing while we're going to be tightening for the foreseeable future. And then on top of that, I think that there are a significant number of really well-run innovative companies and investors in the United States don't need to invest in China because there are a lot of poorly run companies in China. You can be really, really picky. So Matthews Asia, for example, we're one of the largest active investors in the China market in the US, but we only hold about 200 Chinese companies out of a universe of over 5,000 listed companies. Mm -hmm. So as an active investor can be really, really picky about which Chinese company he or she invests. Mm -hmm. I got the, all great points. Um, this was wonderful. It's all the time we have for today. Thank you so much for tuning in, Andy. Thank you for helping us digest all of this. Uh, we hope you listen to our next episode tomorrow. Market Watch's data journalist and interactives developer, Katie Mariner, will have a discussion about the state of the supply chains at the largest U.S. ports and what various data points are signaling as importers prepare for back to school season and Black Friday. Thank you for listening. Be well. Have a nice day. The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com.